You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, we continue our series through the book of Philippians as Pastor Josh Brady preaches from chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 4. In these verses, Paul encourages the believer to follow the example of Christ. So as we listen, may that example become clear to us so that, by the Holy Spirit's power, we would live as Christ calls us to. Well, good morning, church. How are we? Great. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you open to Philippians chapter 1? Philippians 1, we will end our time uh, going into chapter 2 today, uh, but more than likely it is all on the same page. If you were in your following Jesus Bible, that is page 1275. 1275, and I'll give you the same warning last week. We're not going to do this forever. Don't throw your pastor under the bus, kids, and tell your teachers that pastor gives me the page numbers and they need to too. We need to learn the books of our Bible, so we're going to get there, okay? But today's page number is 1,275. Uh, As you are turning there, I I would love to to take an opportunity this morning um, uh, before we even jump into this text and and to to spend some special time praying for for Israel. Uh, Now, I I want to to be very clear on what we are about to do, okay? Um, I, I know that anytime there is war, we want to pray. Uh, anytime there is uh, unrest around the world, we want to pray for peace. Um, but we have a very specific reason to be praying for Israel this morning because the scriptures command us to do so. Uh, out of Psalm 122, verse 6, the scriptures tell us to always be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is dead in the heart of, of Israel. And so in that, we will pray. But I want to be crystal clear in this, okay? Um, I know that, that we across this room, uh, we, we are connected in the finer points of our Christian faith. We know that Jesus Christ is our only way to salvation, our only way to be right with the Father. Uh, we, we know that we need the church. Uh, but when it gets to end-time theology, Uh, I would say that sometimes our theologies begin to branch off and scatter a lot. Uh, I I want to encourage you this morning. Uh, I do not believe, as I study the Scripture and what I know, um, that what we are looking at moves Christ coming any sooner than it ever was. Jesus is coming back when when his Father tells him to come back. It's what the Scripture teaches to us. And so in that, I don't want us ever to see anything in the Middle East, particularly with Israel, particularly with Jerusalem. And and hear me out. I love you as your pastor. I don't really, it doesn't bother me, the, the Bible studies that you've gone through or the timeline maps that you have. If your theology has you more worried about Jesus coming back than doing what he told you to do, we need a different theology, okay? And so with that, this morning, we want to pray for peace in Jerusalem. And so if you would join me this morning as we pray for that peace and we ask the Father to continue to give us the passion and wisdom to continue to make disciples of all nations, for that is the last and greatest command he's given to us. And when he comes back, church, and he will, it is what we will be held accountable for. And so we want to make sure that we are good and faithful witnesses for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you would, join me in praying now. Oh, Father, we do love you. And we thank you that you are sovereign over all things at all times and all places. We are thankful before the world was ever spoken into existence, you knew every day that we would have. Lord, my heart breaks for what is going on in Israel. 
God, the innocent lives, the babies, the women, the children, the men. Oh God, please, please bring peace. Bring peace. Give peace that surpasses understanding. God, give us a way. We, we think we know a way. We, in our hearts, we, we, are, we are wise in our own minds and our own hearts. But God, we are pleading, God, that you would give us, give our, our leaders, give leaders around this world, God, wisdom that is beyond us, that at the end of the day, peace would be had and glory would be yours. But God, even in that, as we understand, God, that you will come back and we know that you are coming back. God, I pray that we would be found faithful. Faithful to the call and faithful to the task. You have called us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching and going. And Father, I pray that even as we see events unfolding before our eyes, right here in Madison and around the world, God, it would not be something that would put us in a fearful mode, but it would be something that puts us in an active mode to take this gospel to the nations as fast as we can. For we know the only hope in this life and in the next is Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us that passion and that focus. Help us not miss an opportunity. Help us be faithful in prayer. But help us also be faithful in witness. Oh, Jesus, we love you. And it's in your powerful name that we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Church family, as we are jumping into the text today, we, we are getting into, uh, we, we talked about it last week, where we kind of got off of the, the, the introductory part of Paul's letter, which is really good. It's building a theology in the readers then and now, that's us, and it's also fortifying the faith that they have. But as we move forward, particularly as we, we end our, our chapter one and move into chapters two, three, and four, you are going to see something happen. There is going to be a call to tension. And the tension is going to be something like this. Here's the command, and you're expected, and so remember, it's written to them in the first century. Here's their command, and they are expected to be obedient, not later, not when they get it sorted out, not after they've gone to seminary, not after they've prayed about it, but now. And so there's going to be this sense of, oh, wait, is it, are we supposed to do this right now? Right? So, so as I think through this, it reminds me of a movie that my Uncle Ed used to watch all the time. And I know that there's a certain generation in this room that when I say this name, it's going to put a smile on your face. John Wayne's Hondo. Anybody? No? For the younger folks, you've probably seen one of the clips that have been turned into a meme recently about a little boy standing by the edge of a pond and doesn't know how to swim. Know what I'm talking about? Comes from the movie Hondo. John Wayne is, is Hondo, and this little boy doesn't know how to swim, and, and John Wayne walks up and he tells him, well, if you want to catch the fish, you need to go on the other side. How do I get there? Swim? I don't know how to swim. What do you mean you don't know how to swim? And John Wayne grabs the little boy and throws him into the water, and he starts to drown, swim, and then more swim to the other side. Philippians going to feel a lot like that. Sometimes it's going to feel like, like we are being thrown into the deep end of the pool and we are looking like, what are we supposed to do? And we're going to hear from the sidelines, swim. And so with that understanding and with maybe that, that if it's a joyful memory of yours, maybe it's not. Let's see how it unfolds from here. 
as we look at this letter today, there are going to be two things that are going to, to be pretty clear to us, okay? Uh, Paul is going to urge the Philippians to make sure that everything about their life is worthy of the gospel. And, and, and even in that phrase, it is, that is a weighty, weighty phrase. And they will do this by, by two things, okay? They will be doing this by standing together against opposition, and then they will do this by serving one another in humble compassion. Okay, so standing together and serving one another. With that in mind, let's jump into the very first verse today. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now again, you, you know I'm an ESV fan. That's what I preach out of. That is what many of us are reading out of today. Uh, but I want to tip my hat to uh, the, the translators of the CSB, right? That's the Christian Standard Bible. The iteration prior to that was the Holloman Christian Standard Bible. Uh, for, for in this, here is how they begin this, this, this big, uh, first letter. So where we get only in the ESV... They would say one thing. Here, here's one thing. I have one thing for you to know. And, and so when we read that, that seems to gather your attention. Of all the things we're going to talk about in this letter, this one thing is going to matter the most. I don't think it's too much of an overstatement to even say, hey, one thing about your whole entire Christian life comes down to this. Now, with that being said, are you intrigued? What is that one thing? What is the one thing that would encompass all of our life while we are breathing on this side of eternity? This is what we are being called to do. We know that we have a mission, but how are we to be as we fulfill that mission? We get our answer here. One thing, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so if, if we wanted to, and we, we don't, we want to go a little bit deeper, we want to get context, we want to make sure that we are, we are doing this, this passage justice, but honestly, we don't really have to, because we could end our sermon here and then move into response time right now, because here, here's kind of where it lies. As you hear that, I pray that the Holy Spirit is working in your life and in your mind right now, considering the question, what is it about my life that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ? And what Paul is saying to this church is everything about your life should be worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Implications, and we're going to see in just a moment, that if it is, if something about your life is good, is pleasing, is holy for the Lord, then praise God for that and continue in it. But if it's not, it's got to go. If, if there is something in your life that's standing in the way of God getting glory and the kingdom being advanced, then that thing can't be there, or at least it has to change, right? So, so but let's, let's do a little bit deeper, deeper dive into this verse, okay? It's now our turn, as Paul said earlier, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It is now our turn to, to take that phrase and apply it to our life. What would it look like to live as Christ? What would it look like to, to, to believe that if we were to die, that's the greatest gain for us? Paul would say that we live our life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the word manner here is a fun word. 
right? In, in the Greek, uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, so if any of my Greek uh, scholars in the room, bear with me. Polytuomai, that, that is the Greek word for manner, and the root of that word is polis. It's the same place we get politics, it's the same place that we get political, and it's this idea, polis is the Greek word for, for city, And as we we see this, the meaning here is your life and how you live it will prove what city you are from, it will prove what city you love, and prove what city you long for. That's essentially what he is saying. That's how they would understand this. So their lives are representing the city that they're from. Now, Paul says, let our life prove that our city is heaven. That our citizenship lies in heaven with Christ. Now, this idea would be incredibly clear to them. Remember, they are living in Philippi, which is in Greece. But it's a Roman city. Rome is a long way from Philippi. But if you were to walk into Philippi and you look around at the structure, if you look around at the education, if you look around at at how they do government, it would be hard-pressed to believe that you were not in Rome. And so for Paul to say that their life, the way that they live it, how they function, the things that they value should prove that they are living for a different city is not lost on them. Here's a really silly illustration, but maybe it helps prove the point and maybe helps bring us into the game just a little bit. Now, I know across this room, again, we are united. We, 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 we recited the Apostles' Creed together. We sang the Creed together. And so we are united in Christ on Sundays. But many of us on Saturdays are divided. Any Bulldog fans in the house? Any Rebel fans in the house? Any Southern Miss fans in the house? Any J-State fans in the house? Any Alcorn fans in the house? Any junior college fans in the house? here's, Here's potentially how we would know. It wouldn't be by what you say, because maybe you could say one thing. But if I showed up at your house, I've been to many of your homes, I've been in many of your vehicles, I've I've been around you and and seen the clothes that you wear. Many of you rep the city that you don't live in today. You live in Madison, but your house looks like Startville. We we live in Madison, but it'd be hard-pressed to tell me we weren't at the Grove. Right? So, so is this idea that we love something. I told you it's a silly illustration. We love something so much that we are going to take everything we can from that place and bring it into our life every day to remind us of that joy and happiness that we feel when we are there. Right? So the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, that, that's a really silly illustration. He is saying, we know that we are citizens of heaven. We have tasted and seen the goodness of our God who lives there forever, and it is our job as his ambassadors that as we live now here, that we bring heaven with us as we go. That when people meet us, they don't have to hear from us, they can see us and see where our allegiance lies. How we act and interact The things that we are a part of, the things that we stay away from, the things that we value and get joy from, those things speak volumes about where our heart finds its greatest joy. So with that, where is your heart's allegiance? Does our life 
Does our life prove that we, we belong to Christ? Does our, does our life prove that we are longing for the kingdom that's to come? Our life and everything that makes it up should tell everyone that Jesus Christ is Lord. Looking at our life this week, all right? Now, again, this, this should be not, not, this is not to be guilt or shame inducing, but I promise you it will be convicting because it has been and continues to be for me. So here's the question that I ask myself and I'll ask you. Looking at our life this week, what has your life communicated that you love the most? Looking at everything you've done over the past seven days, what do you value most? All right, here's another question. What are the areas in your life that you need to surrender to the Lord right now? So, so whatever those things are that would get into the way, uh, what are those things are that would hinder the Lord's glory from, from, from shining brightly? What are those things that are getting in the way? For us, church, that is something that we have to contend with this morning and do away with. More to that as we move towards the end of our time. Paul goes back and he says they're encouraged to, to show their kingdom citizenship by, by two ways, right? Number one is to stand firm in one's spirit. Now again, if you were to take a deeper dive into the Greek language, he's going to use two metaphors here, or at least two, two images that are, are going to be on display that they would know very well. One would be of a soldier and one would be of an athlete, right? So the first line that we see would, would be more of the military mindset. And it is this, standing firm with one's spirit. That they would stand together, that they would be united. And the second part would be the more athletic tone. With one mind standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the reason for their uniting isn't because they're better together. It isn't because they could benefit from the other person's gifting and, and that person could gift, uh, benefit from theirs. That may be true. But the reason that they come together, the reason that they are united, even though in many of their, their lives' circumstances are divided, the reason they unite is for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are they standing firm against? Like, like what would be this militaristic mind frame? Well, there's three things that we can see from church history and from reading the rest of this letter. One is the persecution of Rome. Remember, They're in a Roman city. Rome was not a friend of Christianity. So they're they're standing standing firm against the persecution of Rome. Many of the Jewish people did not like Christians. And there was as much persecution coming from them. And then there was persecution from the enemy. From those who were outside of Rome or outside from the Jewish faith. And they were trying to get them. So they would stand firm together, all right? So the other end. How are they striving side by side? How are they contending as athletes, as a team, together, same mind? They are united in heart. That doesn't mean that they're robotic. It doesn't mean that they're absolutely in every way the same. But they are united. United in what? That Apostles' Creed we just read? That united the church for thousands of years. That was the thing around 3400 uh, AD. That was the thing that would unite the church. And, and at the end of it, Marcus is absolutely right. The core of that creed is Christ. 
And so they would gather together as a team in just the same way as on a team. There are people who play different positions, but they come together as one in one jersey attempting to win the prize or to receive the prize that is ahead of them for the sake of Christ. This was normal everyday life for them. This wasn't to be something that they had to, to posture themselves to do or, or a two-week emphasis or a, or a year-long goal. For them, this was everyday life, the normal Christian life. When they loved Jesus and their life reflected the truth of the gospel, persecution was a given. That's why they had to stand side by side. So I guess the question, if we are doing good study, comes to us now. What does our normal everyday Christian life look like? Like if, if this is their normal everyday Christian life, and, and again, I, I don't know if it's necessarily prescriptive as much as it is descriptive here, but I think there's some prescription that we can take to understand that if we are going to say we belong to Christ, then our life should prove that to be true. So what does our normal everyday life look like? we got to know that we're not going out to look for trouble. The, the goal for us isn't persecution. The goal for us is glory of God. But when we live Christ-centered, God-glorifying lives, the world is going to take notice. Sometimes the world is going to fall under conviction and say, I want that. I desire that Christ that you serve. But then there will be others who do not desire that at all. The world says live for yourself. And the gospel calls us to live for others. The world says, build your kingdom at all cost. The gospel proclaims Christ's kingdom at all cost. The world says, live for the here and now. The gospel calls us to live in the here and now, knowing that this place is not our home. So back to the question, what does your normal everyday life look like? For me and for you and for us, Going, going back to, to the Christian Standard Bible's translation of the beginning word of this verse, just one thing. What's stopping you from glorifying Christ with all that you are? I want you to think about that right now, and I want you to write it down. If you have a pen and a pad in front of you, if you have your notes open, if not, I want you to, to, to think of something, think of some, a stumbling block that stands in your way today, right now, and I want you, as you look at that thing, I want you to surrender that to the Lord Jesus. That's called repentance. It's where we acknowledge that we have been wrong or we've been walking in the wrong direction and we surrender that to the Lord Jesus and then we ask for help and we turn around and we go back to following him. Josh, how often should I expect to have to, you know, think of things that get in the way of the glory of Christ and, 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 and go to him and, and ask him to continue to help me? Well, for me, it's about every minute of every day. And so I, I don't think that's too much. Maybe we could even consider that too little. But we have to remember, conviction and repentance are not punishment to us. They are grace extended to us. God is calling us away in conviction and allowing us through repentance. God is calling us away from eternal death and worldly destruction and calling us to the abundant life of Christ that he has promised and offered to us. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. 
but of your salvation and that from God. Paul reminds his readers that they don't need to fear the opponents who stand in front of them and against them. Why? Because God is leading their team of soldiers and coaching them as they would in their athletic endeavors. There's a two-way sign that, that, that they are to understand, right? God is leading, preparing, and uniting them. So the, the first sign that they are to receive from this is, number one, the enemy's done for and he can't win. Church, do you believe that? I know it feels like a lot of times the enemy is winning, but I promise you he won't. The scriptures are very clear. The battle is already won. I don't know if, if you are a student of the word, because if not, sometimes we can get mixed messages feeling like Jesus and the devil are on equal footing and they're in a fight for your eternal life. That is the farthest thing from the truth. The devil can't even be in the same realm as Christ. They are not equal at any point or any time or any space. Christ has already won the victory. When we see in Revelation the skies are going to roll back and he comes again, what color robe is Jesus robed in? Do you know? White. That's not a battle robe, that's a victory robe. The battle's over. When he comes back, he is coming to judge the quick and the dead and the enemy is done. That's the hope that we have. So the first sign, the first thing that they are supposed to, to have as they are getting ready to be thrown into the deep end of the water and said, swim, remember that the enemy cannot and will not win. And number two, that if you are on the side of Christ, you cannot lose. But Josh, what if I, no, 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 no. This is the beauty of the gospel. Are you ready for it? Christ's victory has nothing to do with you or I and everything to do with him. That's the beauty of the gospel. Well, Josh, don't I still need to live a... Yes, we need to live a life that is worthy of the manner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's because he is already the victor. And so for us, church family, this is good news that we must commit to our heart and our mind. The enemy can't win and we can't lose. So no matter what we face, no matter what stands before us, Christ has already gone before us. The enemy cannot win and we cannot lose. But Josh, what about those moments when we just don't feel like it's going to be okay? I think there's some questions we have to, to remember. Number one, is God leading us? If yes, then it's okay. Some days it'll be green pastures, some days it'll be still waters. Some days it'll be through the valley of the shadow. But none of them have to be fearful for you because the enemy can't win and you can't lose. And are, are we prepared enough? I don't even know what enough would mean. But here's what I do know. The more we read this book, the more we pray, the more we are in community that reminds us of the truth of the gospel, our hearts tend to settle the chaos of this life tends to cease. And so there's a preparedness question that we ask ourselves. And another one, are we united with our brothers and sisters? This is a big one for the church. This was a big one for the church in the first century, still today in the 21st century. If we are united, we are a formidable force. The gates of hell cannot stand against God's church. 
but we can also get in the way of our own selves. When we have struggles with one another that we can't offer forgiveness. In moments that, that should be repented of and we won't. In moments of confession that we choose to hide. Those are all things that will, will hinder this, this fellowship with one another. I usually find that in my poor feeling, usually comes from one of these areas not being answered correctly. Is God leading me? If I get to the place where I say, well, I don't know, I'm usually in a bad spot. Am I united with my brothers and sisters? Uh, maybe. Then I'm usually in a bad spot. Am, am I prepared? Have I been in the Word? Have I been in prayer? Am I, am I been in community and confession and repentance? Have I been in those things? Maybe. If not, then I'm in a really bad place. God is calling us to continue to be faithful to the task, as for, to live a life manner worthy of the gospel. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I'm going to tell you right now, as we walk through these next, this next verse, there's two gifts that God gives to us. One of them you're going to love, one of them you're not. But they're both gifts. And let me explain them to you. Paul talks about two incredible gifts that God in his infinite grace and wisdom gives to all of his followers. The first one is belief in him. That's faith. If you are a Christian, God gave you the gift of belief. That's faith in Christ. God gave that to you. God breathed life into your dead bones. You were dead in your sin, and God breathed life into you and brought you from death to life. God did that. That is grace. And so for many of us, we would say, amen, yes, praise God. Thank you for that gift. The second gift is just as powerful. Suffering. God gives his followers the gift of suffering. Now, again, I'm, I'm not going to, to get into parsing this out. I want to be clear. I do not believe that God causes evil. The scriptures are very clear on that. But I do believe that God allows his followers to suffer to some extent. Here's, here's why. Are you ready? Suffering for Christ Suffering as a Christian draws us to the Lord Jesus and to one another. That's a gift. You may say, Josh, I don't like that gift. Just think with me, if you will, okay? What season of life has caused you to pray the most? Has it been when everything is good? Or has it been in your suffering? What season of life has caused you ex to experience true Christian community where brothers and sisters ran to you and stayed with you and loved you and built you up? What season of life caused that? Was it when you had everything and they didn't know you? Or is it when your life was falling apart and you didn't know where to go? Which one? See, we may not see it on, on just the, the, the general glance over, but we need to understand suffering is a gift for the believer. And this is the crazy thing. A lot of times in our suffering, we feel alone. We feel like God may have even forgotten us. We talked about it this summer when we went through the Psalms. Psalm 10, Psalm 13, those are very key Psalms speaking to God. Where are you? Did you forget me? Do you not see me? Do you not see the tears that I'm crying? God sees. God knows you. God loves you. God has a plan for every tear you've cried. 
the gift of faith and the gift of suffering draws Christ's church together. Look at verse 30. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul is able to empathize with their suffering because he's going through the same thing or is going through the same thing. Hello, he's in Roman prison right now for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. This should be encouragement to us. Are you ready? The scriptures were not written in a setting of comfort and excess. The scriptures were all written at a place of pain, suffering, and loss. Consider it. When did Paul write most of his letters? When were the gospel narratives written? After Christ was gone. The whole book of Acts, the reason the church spreads throughout the world isn't because all the days are bright and sunny. It's because persecution is being leveled against all of God's people and God is using their suffering for his glory. And so if you find yourself here today or maybe in the season of life and it's really hard and you would say, well, I'm just not happy. I don't want to go to this book. This book was written for you. This book was written for us. It is an encouragement to us. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Jesus, Jesus knows who we are and what we're going through. So at the end of chapter 1, there's a break. And then it opens up to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is this, this beautiful call to Christ's likeness and, and brotherly love. So, so read with me, if you will, Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, and any sympathy. So, so four things, four categories. And essentially they're this. If you love Jesus and you love his people, and you care about the work that we are called to do. Then, verse 2, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul is saying, look, if you, if you love the Lord, if you, if you have tasted and seen his goodness, if you experience his graciousness to you, then it's time to do something. Here is the doing as we live out the Great Commission. Here's what he says. Be of the same mind. What is the same mind? That is Christ. Having the same love, what is the same love? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of the glory that comes and due to his name. And being a full accord and of one mind, that is being united together in the bond of love. You say individually that we love the Lord Jesus. Paul says then show that by coming together. And in that coming together, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, again, uh, we, we were talking this morning. Uh, Beth Bowman led our, our, our prayer time this morning. And she said, we could have just stopped right here. And she's absolutely right. Because this verse right here is, is a sermon for the all of the Christian life. And I know I'm way out of time. So our worship team is going to come. But I don't want to miss this. Because what's at stake is unity in the church and glory for the name of Christ. Now, what our mission statement is, we are united family of faith, joining Jesus on his mission for the glory of God and the good of our communities. 
Oh, church, listen to me. That is not just a couple of words that we threw together and hope that they stuck. We believe that unity is the calling card of changed lives. So Paul says, as he is speaking to this church as a whole, he speaks to them individually and says, okay, so you're saying that you love Jesus and 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 and all y'all love Jesus, great, then come together. Because that's how the gospel is going to be taken to the nations. When you come together, you can't do it by yourself. You shouldn't want to do it by yourself. You were called to do this together. But there's going to be something that is going to to kill it right where it stands. Paul warns against it in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Because the moment we say we are united as one, and then all of a sudden we throw up our hand and say, but I don't like, but I want, but I desire, but I think. Anytime we start putting what we desire over what God has already said, then the mission begins to fizzle. So Paul says, if you've experienced the love of Christ, if you've been changed by his goodness, if you love him and love his people, then come together, but do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But instead, in in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's a big deal. That when you look around to brothers and sisters who are around you, to consider them more important than you. But hear me out, they are to do the same for you. And at the end of the day, all of that humility is glory to Christ. Verse 4, let each of you look not only at your own interest, but also at the interest of others. Right now, we want to live our lives to prove that our citizenship is in heaven and our allegiance is to Christ as our Lord. So what are the things right now that are hanging us up? The things that are causing us to desire to change once we leave this building. You may sit here today and you hear the sermon and you say, yes, Josh, of course, of course I'm going to do this. Of course, we're a united family of faith. And then when we get out of those doors, things change. What is it that changes? Surrender that to the Lord right now. Church, let's resolve ourselves to stand firm and to strive side by side with each other for the gospel's sake. Paul uses the imagery of a soldier and an athlete to describe how brothers and sisters should interact and react with one another. I know across this room we have many military men and women. I know many of you have been a part of sports at some point in your life or enjoy watching sports. How many high-functioning soldiers or athletes do you know that only think about the game when they get in it? Or do they not spend every moment thinking about what is before them? Game planning, thinking, considering, strategizing, figuring out how to be the most effective player or soldier that they can be to accomplish the task that's before them? There's a reason Paul uses those illustrations here. For us, this is our life. Church, the Great Commission isn't something that is just in theory way out there. It should be the consuming portion of our life to make disciples of all nations. What are we doing to fulfill it? Yes, we are to come together. Yes, we are to be united as one, but we all play different positions in that coming together. So, here's my question. 
what are the things in your life that are standing in the way of you being able to take on and to accomplish the Great Commission? Is it jealousy? Is it conceit? That's, that's the warning Paul gave. And maybe, maybe it's not like they're preaching the gospel better than you or, or they're serving fifth grade better than you. But maybe we don't even get to the spiritual part because we're so caught in the worldly part. I mean, I'd be a better Christian if I drove a better car. My house was better, man. The Lord would use me more in a mighty way. If I just had a pool, that'd be awesome. Lord, let me catch more fish. I feel like I'd be better off. I know those things sound silly, but aren't the things that hold us back kind of silly? I'm curious. What is it about your life that's holding you back from living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? For that is what we are called to consider and give up today as we are thrown into the deep end of the water and told, make disciples. Let's go. You can't do the job until you first deal with your stuff. So this morning in the invitation time, I pray that you would consider where you are, how your life reflects the glory of Christ and the areas that it may not. Again, this isn't guilt. This isn't shame. For the believer, Christ took those for you. But this is an opportunity for us to repent and believe the gospel for us to, to change the direction that our life is going and to come back and go the direction it's supposed to be. So with that, would you pray with me, church? Father, I love you and I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. It has both been joyful and challenging. Just one thing, just one thing that our life glorify you with all that it is and all that it has. Holy Spirit, I ask that you move across this room today in our hearts and our minds and that you would show us the areas that, that are hindering us from that thing. From that life, from your glory. Help us, Father, to be right in this. Help us to be honest in our confession and sincere and our repentance. Oh Jesus, we want nothing more than to glorify you with every breath that we have left. We want to be a church that's united, joining you in your mission for the glory of God and the good of our communities. Oh Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray, and we now stand and respond. Church, would you stand with me?